Welcome to the Voice Culture Podcast with your hosts, Brian Lee and Justin Peterson. Hi, Justin. It looks like you're somewhere else for Christmas time. I am. I am out of Boston, Massachusetts, and right now I am sitting in my brother's dojo in Jefferson City, Missouri. Oh my God! Um, yeah. So my brother is an advocational uh, av- uh, uh, practitioner of uh, karate, and they have a whole setup here. And he has a television on the wall, and they take classes from Tokyo, and it's a wow. whole ex- oh, it's extravagantly uh, exciting stuff going on here in, in uh, Missouri. Uh, and uh, they have all their equipment and everything here. So I'm, I'm I've sort of lost control of my usual situation with uh, my Boston studio. So. Um, I'm in a brand new place, so if you hear any noises, uh, also know it's the Christmas season and uh, uh, family has gathered here just actually outside the room where I'm recording. So if you hear loud noises, it's just the celebration on, of kith and kin. <laughs> well, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. Add a little, add a little flair and air to our to our background. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Neat. Well. What have we got for the people today? What do you want to talk about? Well, I thought today we would talk a little bit about uh, higher education and uh, some of the things that we have talked about in terms of uh, its ability to prepare singers for a lifetime of singing mm-hmm. and some of the limitations, perhaps, and some of the areas where there may be some more room to develop and grow uh, and just maybe t- discuss, too, a little bit of the history of uh, collegiate or, I guess, music singing schools. Uh, throughout the history of the United States. So that's kind of what I thought we could talk about, of course, and then just riff mm-hmm. as we go, because mm-hmm. we do like to just take tangents as we as we get them. Yeah, so, totally. Yeah. Well, so, you yeah. and I are both uh, products uh, through master's level, right, of yep. uh, these mm-hmm. music schools that are, that are uh, National Association of Schools of Music Accredited Institutions. Yes. So uh, in most of the U.S., we're... There are college music programs where you can get a degree in music. Those schools are accredited. And so they have certain things in common. So, um, you know, certain like course requirements are are in common. And a lot of the uh, pr- preparation of performers, uh, if you get a performance degree in voice or performance degree in violin or in drums or whatever, there's really similar types of processes you go through. For example, semester ending, you have to do playing tests or singing tests called juries. Mm. Um, usually everyone is put through the the grinder of having to play basic piano. They call that piano proficiency. And then there's the courses in history and music theory. And so those those are those are some things that are fairly common to college programs and it's sort of evolved as a standard it's it's interesting um music degrees in colleges have been really pretty much the same for many decades uh, mm-hmm. i would say back to the 40s or so oh yeah and, and who talk can you talk about the nasm a little bit and sort of how do you know much about how they sort of stipulate their requirements and well, all of that is sort of how that comes down. I don't know much about the accreditation mm-hmm. process, okay. except that I know that that uh, institutions have to submit their syllabi uh, and and their degree programs, their their course sequences, um, and they do get occasional, as I understand it, something like an audit. You know, they have to like mm. like 
keep proving that they are meeting certain requirements um, that that are standards of uh, coursework, etc. So, but I I don't know much more than that. I mean, I've been out of that scene for a while, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't, you know, know the the nuts and bolts of it. But I do know that some of my friends who are in it. Uh, talk about you know having to deal with NASM every once in a while to keep things certified, right. so to speak, <laughs> certifiable. Yes, yeah, exactly. right. Yeah, yeah. Right. I um I just didn't know. I, I've done some research on the history of uh, of music schools in, uh-huh. in the U.S. Nothing. I didn't want to take a too deep of a dive, but mm-hmm. you know we had our first uh, music degree in 1833. Uh, actually, in Boston, it wouldn't probably surprise a lot of people to learn that. Boston was sort of a hub of music education in the United States for some time. Yeah. Um, I often tell the joke about myself because um, I'm named after Justin Morgan, who was a horse trainer uh, and also created the Morgan horse. So if anybody has an equestrian interest, he was sort of the breeder of that uh, horse. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but I had done some research on him and found out that he was actually one of the first extant voice teachers in the United States. So... Uh, he wasn't really affiliated with a school, but obvi- but he did live in Connecticut. So, you know, New England, I don't think it would surprise anybody, uh, right. would, was the sort of the hub of all mm-hmm. of that. And that was the Boston uh, Academy of Music. And that was what we would consider to be the first music school uh, in the United States of America. And um, But a lot of the music that, a lot of the voice training that was done, which I found very interesting, was religious voice training. So it was a lot of training singers to be... Uh, leading religious music okay so they would operate not in a performance sense not in a theatrical sense because mm-hmm. if you think about it in the 1700s and 1800s where would they get what would they do where would yeah. you know where would these where would these so-called you know classical singers go well they would have only gone into churches to perform as uh, congregational singers or leaders of choir music in their own churches and that sort of again sort of models that trade model you see that we've we've often talked about this idea of a trade um and you, you trained to not be a performer per se, but you trained trained to be a tradesman in your local communities or different parts of the of the country where you would come out and you would be the local singing master or the voice teacher in that area. And this so, was long before uh, music programs entered universities and colleges. It was the the post secondary training at these music schools and conservatories was pretty different than a university education. Oh, yes. Because of the orientation you were just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. We did not get bachelor degrees in the United States until 1865. Okay. And that was at at, uh, Oberlin. Oberlin was the first school in the United States to give a bachelor of music degree. Okay. Uh, And that was, again, that's 1865. That's, you know, Civil War, end of Civil War. Right. So that just gives you an idea of, like, what was going on in the country before Mm -hmm. that time. Mm -hmm. It was sort of kind of catch as catch can. And most of it was largely, again, of a religious nature uh, or preparatory training for some kind of a a trades position in a a church. So, yeah, we didn't get a we didn't get um, bachelor's degrees until 1865. So I thought that was really cool. We didn't have very many opera houses or concert situations uh, that ramped up in the latter half of the 19th century. Yep. And MENC, which is a, something that a lot of music education uh, majors know, mm-hmm. which is the, um, the um, Music Educators National Conference, mm-hmm. that was established in 1907. So even that is sort of rather new-ish if we think about it in terms of you know, the scope of American history. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah. Um, and from there on, you know, programs kind of sprouted up everywhere throughout the country. You, you could now have a bachelor's degree of music. And uh, if you actually go through the old Etude magazine, which is a kind of a fun uh, romp for once in a while, mm-hmm. you'll see in the back of the um, magazine, there's a lot of listings for different colleges and universities in the United States offering different music programs. So that's really a, a, a kick. That's a real kick to see all of these different programs that we're offering you uh, study in all different manner of uh, instruments and voice. So, uh, but I don't know that, you know, I don't, I'd have to really do a deeper dive to figure out were those voice people being really trained for opera or were they just being trained in a more classical sense of to understand the musical um, uh, literature, right? The musical style and, and all of those sorts of things that we would consider to be reg- de rigueur in maybe a piano major or a uh, violin major. Yeah. I don't know, the, you know, were there performance majors? I didn't, I couldn't really find out when did the performance major come about? When did well, they decide we're going to give you a performance? Oh, you know, do you know? No, I don't. But oh, that was, okay. that was, that's exactly the other half of the question I was about to answer, which, which mm. is when did the big bifurcation come between music ed and music performance mm-hmm. in this, in the universities and colleges? Because that has been a big deal for the last 60 years. Oh, yes. Um, you know, they're, they're different tracks. Uh, in departments of music, you're, you know, ed major or performance. And, mm-hmm. and uh, they're, they're handled pretty differently in some schools and other schools. Uh, it's virtually the same requirements. Um, what's kind of evolved though on the, on the music ed side, I can speak for that since I did mm-hmm. go through that mill uh, in the nineties, which is um, a lot of, a lot of requirements, um, that would not be required of a performance person. For example, you have to take uh, basic technique classes in all the orchestra and band instruments. Um, you have to take some courses, usually in a in a department of education, that have to do with things like educational psychology mm. and uh, learning theory and um, practicums. Like like you actually have some field experiences out in schools. And another thing that crept, cropped up uh, a lot around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century was normal schools, which were the, the teacher education schools. Mm. They were very specific to training teachers. And I honestly don't know how music was handled in those, if there was a, a music track or music component to the, the, the teacher schools. Um, we have there was one in Iowa University of Northern Iowa that started out as a teacher school. A uh, uh, hundred years ago, it had teacher in the name. Mm. Um, well, I can remember in Missouri we used to have something called teachers' colleges. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. We would say that's a teachers' college. That was the whole purpose of the college was to mm-hmm. to make teachers basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the part I think we can zero in on a lot today, though, in terms mm. of. Uh, it undergoing changes and challenges is the performance part of it. Yes. You know, how we teach, how we teach singers to sing, how we teach performers to perform, how we prepare people. Um, you can probably hear my quotation marks for <laughs> careers. Right. <laughs> and it, career in quotation marks as well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's all, it's all yeah. italics and quotation marks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, and it's funny because, like I've said, we've, I'm on the other side of the, of the equation with getting kids into school, not for music programs per se, but for uh, musical theater programs. Yes. And it's interesting to me to see just the sheer numbers of students that are 
actively searching for these programs by the thousands and how competitive this process is. And I, I often wonder in my brain of brains, are the, let's say the opera singers of yesteryear, who, who are with us today, right? Are the, the, the current student, the current crops of students, rather than choosing operatic performance, are they choosing musical theater, right? Is it just that it has more cachet and they're moving... Because those, those programs are so competitive. Someone um, told me that it's easier to get into the Harvard Law School than it is to get into certain musical theater programs in the United States of America. So I, I come at this from looking at it in the terms of are the musicians that may have considered classical music sort of being diverted over uh, into musical theater, especially if those performers who are very theatrically based. Because mm-hmm. I would think, I think opera people, opera singers in general, yes, they're musicians, but they do have a theatrical bent to them and to their temperament. So I mm-hmm. just wonder if there's not, a, if there's not a, uh, an increasing interest in musical theater as the new, let's say, the new voice major, right? The new voice major of today would be the musical theater major. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, that's conjecture. I don't know. I'm not saying that's true, but I think you know it's, it bears looking into. Well, let's look at the market. So, but right. part of part of the deal is there's there's, um, regardless of how many students there are trying to get into the pipeline, there's a, there are a lot more outlets for musical theater than there mm-hmm. are for opera, mm-hmm. and um, the voice programs in m- most schools still are pretty opera centric. And the thing is, when you look at how many people at a college are studying voice, let's say there's 50 people taking voice lessons. A whole bunch of those people are aiming to become teachers. Uh, A lot of those people will eventually become teachers, but they don't know it yet. Um, And as far as performing, a lot of those people are going to be singing in churches and in musical theater and opera stage as a percent of the whole is going to be pretty small, but yet the training really emphasizes uh, an operatic sort of goal. Oh, it's Olympics. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's something that I deal with a lot of, even with my most talented students who are just exceptionally great, good singers in the classical operatic style. Yeah. They have the, the ability to get work in that, in that genre is so limited. Again, unless you, Unless they decide to up and move to Germany, right, or up to move to Europe, yeah. and have a career over there. Um, so, and and the training. This is the thing too. The training for the classical singer. People are always crying about you know classical singing is going down the tubes. It's not just. I mean, okay, that may be a separate argument, but mm-hmm. the idea of how we train those singers has gone completely different than it used to be. And we've said that a lot on here. But right, you can't. How can a genre of music survive if the training involved in that genre of music is no longer able to be done? I mean, it just doesn't stand to reason right, right. That, that it can, can continue, um, especially when there are no job opportunities. In other words, if there's no return on investment for those students, uh, that's, that's very scary you know, use of money there, which is why I find a lot of people that I have become, that I know, will, they try to become as diverse as they can. And this is why I sort of invoke Mary Saunders Barton's uh, terminology of cross-training of the ability for a singer to go across genre. That is something that, too, maybe you'll probably agree with me, but I think that's what colleges should be focusing on. Yes. This ability of yes. the singer to be versatile in many different styles of music, yeah. not just uh, a singular style, but yeah. be able to embrace many different kinds of music. Don't you think that the 
way a lot of voice teachers operate is quite a problem in that if you are going to adapt adopt that say say adopt an attitude of cross training and people need to be exposed to and perform in many genres the problem is the teaching tends to not teach simple you know like genre agnostic as peter harrison says genre mm-hmm. agnostic mm-hmm. vocal freedom it's all about style, style. exactly mm-hmm. Style, mm-hmm. style 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 and mm-hmm. and so if when a it's it's possible that a person who had an opera career can become a fine teacher of, of of vocal technique in the aspect of unlocking voices and freeing them up and helping them helping them find find their ease and flexibility. There are opera teachers who can do that, but there's an awful lot of them who can't do that at all. So they're all they're doing is teaching toward the style. Correct. Well, and, and they come in and they are they are a name you see, and they are a marketing tool for a yeah, college. Right. And they come in and they have had illustrious careers, which God bless them. Um, uh, but they do, like you said, they come in and they have never really studied pedagogy in, in depth. They may have an idiosyncratic idea of what they do that's yeah. per, that is very much individualistic to their body and themselves and their particular way of thinking about the voice. Uh, and then to sort of give that to another human being uh, is, a, you know, as a teacher who's really done the work, as many of us have, you know, who have really studied, make it a deep, deep mm-hmm. study of, of, of vocal pedagogy and, and the body. Um we, I have always felt that those teachers of opera who have come into those schools would be best served as artistic advisors to students. In other words, you know, linguistic advisors or stage department advisors or or somehow career advisors in the in the uh, in the craft. Yeah. Um, it always frightens me when a person who you know, there's just the idea of the, the the fallacy of the idea that the person who did it on the stage can teach that someone else how to do it. And that's not always the case. Um, well, not only is it hard to teach what you did on the stage, it's virtually impossible to teach things you never did on the stage. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, if, if, if your main bent is how to teach, how to teach style and how to teach, you know, a uh, certain body mm-hmm. of work as opposed to, voice itself in an idealistic right. way i guess i could say um yeah. like know, if you were a mozart expert let's say you had a you had a career as a mozart singer strauss right mozart and strauss yeah yeah i mean i can't imagine that you would have amazing insights to give into stylistic needs and 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 the demands of those particular compositional requirements but i don't know that that's technical per se in the sense of like usage of the voice yeah Oftentimes, because the, the language that, that, that singers will use when they come into programs is so imprecise, right? Uh, and they're, and they're, they can use sort of these very, very individualistic terms that are very hard to decipher for the young student who doesn't really understand, you know, have any concept of what they're aiming for. And, oh, that's what you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? So their language can be very, very, very idiosyncratic um, and maybe helpful or not helpful. Well, let's but, do this. Um, Here's what I'd yeah. like, like to do, Justin. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. went you went to school originally uh, for opera. So let, let's say that you are a young student who does want to do opera. I'd kind of like to dissect how how these music schools that are mm-hmm. opera based do or do not address even that small niche before we branch out and talk about cross genre. 
because um, I think we have this assumption that a school with a big reputation for opera, let's say Indiana University, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. offers BM, MM, and DMA in voice, um, we have an assumption that that the opera training there is going to be optimal. And I think just because it's better than a lot of places and it's NASM accredited still uh, leaves a lot of room for improvement in terms sure. of actually preparing singers. Right. So, so what are the challenges of a, let's say a young opera singer, someone's 18 years old and they're really oriented towards classical singing and they would love to be an mm. opera singer. Mm. Um, what are the challenges in the way music programs are structured to help them be prepared in their early 20s to actually start doing the thing? Well, for me, I would say from the jump, I would say first the language issue, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Uh, in the United States of America, I would say that the language issue is is number one. And, and it usually gets a superficial sort of covering in terms of IPA or, you know, and maybe you take a French class or you take this. There's not really an immersion there. Yeah. Right. We don't really immerse the, uh, the classical singer who's interested in, in classical music in the language in which they're going to sing in mm-hmm. immersion, immersing mm-hmm. them in the, you know, immersing them in the language uh, so that they understand the cadence, the sound, the, the intonation, the accent, all of the things that come naturally within the language itself so that they have the capability and understanding when they're dealing with text in a song, h- how that works and how the composer has set the text into the music. What I feel like we get a lot of times is if you just get through the IPA, that's, that's sufficient enough. So the student sort of apes the language, right? They sort of indicate the language. There isn't really a deep, profound understanding of what they're singing. Yeah. So any, any school of music that does not put students' linguistic and, and language skills at the forefront, at least in a classical uh, uh, degree, is doing, to me, them a great service. Because if the purpose of communication is to make linguistic uh, comprehensibility... Without that understanding of the deep meaning of words and how, why the words are this way and why the words are set this way and what mm-hmm. they mean, mm-hmm. uh, the student is really just at the end of the day a very, very smartly educated parrot. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we've talked before a lot about how 100 years ago and before that singers would have more frequent lessons. They may have mm-hmm. had shorter lessons, like half hour lessons or whatever, but they had more frequent lessons and lots of coaching and studied for a long time and uh i'm wondering so let's take a a sample singer from 100 years ago so let's say a a uc burling or um you know a caruso or or a a galley kirchi did they have to have proficiency in four languages when they were 22 I don't think they did because one of the things that happened in those early days of of the of the opera world, not early days, but you know what I mean, early days of the 20th century, mm-hmm. a, a lot of them performed in their own language. So That's they would what, do that. Was the tendency that I see? Yeah, you know, yeah. If you if Caruso would sing uh, Faust in in Italian, or they would sing you know a German opera in Italian. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maria Callas, for example, made a lot of her her uh, German repertoire in Italian. Um, mm-hmm. So there wasn't. They didn't switch. They didn't switch over and That's sing these I other thought. languages. Yeah. Um, there wasn't that demand for them to be, poly, you know, what is it? It's a polyglots. Um, 
Yeah, so I don't... And even at the Metropolitan Opera, when the Metropolitan Opera op, uh, was first the opening night, I think it was Boris Goodenough, I'm not sure, don't quote me on this. Um, oh, no, it was Faust. Faust was their first opera, I believe. But there was a performance in the early uh, part of the Metropolitan Opera's history where they did Boris Goodenough, and the chorus was in one language, the supernumer, the um, super, the um, sorry, the compromari were in another language. Mm-hmm. Some of the leads were all in different languages. So it was a mishmash mm-hmm. of language, mm-hmm. and the public just took it. You know, um, they were like, okay, this is what opera is, I guess. Um, so no, I don't think that the linguistic sort of demand was there to the degree. And and many, I would say this: many Italian singers, for uh, for example, mm-hmm. of the 20th century didn't weren't really successful in French repertoire. It was very difficult. I yeah. think of Morella Freni as a great example of this. Morella Freni, who was a fabulous Italian uh, lyric soprano, really didn't really quite get to uh, the French repertoire in and, a way that would have really been convincing li- linguistically. And linguistically, French is, is uh, you know, two doors down from Italian. <laughs> None right. of them touched German that I know of. No, no. I don't know did, of any Italian... An Italian. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. So, so I want to start enumerating the, the what well, I'll say the challenges of in higher ed right now for a voice major and for an opera major in particular is what we're talking about. Okay, first thing is they're getting very few lessons. They're getting like 15 mm. lessons a yes. semester. A so semester. Maybe, maybe yes. 30 lessons a year. And then uh, as opposed to, you know, the old days of more like 100 or more. Then mm-hmm. you have them having to fulfill requirements of singing in, usually it's at least four languages, right? Isn't it English, mm-hmm. French, German, Italian? Yeah. And exactly. then they yeah. encourage Russian and they may throw some Spanish in there. And of course, for your church gigs, you're doing Latin. But um, mm-hmm. uh, so, so they're requiring all these languages. They're, they're requiring far less uh, voice lessons and... Then the the other part that comes in with uh, stuff integrated into universities are the general education requirements. So this is where, uh, in the modern day anyway, conservatories and universities are different. Now, mm-hmm. I think NASM does accredit a lot of conservatories also. So they do have some general requirements. But a lot of times they're much more onerous in a university. And... So you have a, a student uh, juggling an awful lot of fields of knowledge in this compressed time period of four years. Oh, yeah. Well, and not only that, but if they're not in a conservatory, uh, they're dealing with all these other class, you know, these liberal arts education classes. Yeah, that's, yeah, so, I mean, that's what I'm getting to. Right, exactly. Oof. So it's, it's, a, it's just so much. They're spread, they're spread so, thin so thin in so many mm-hmm. areas they're, they're within uh, music. You know, they're they're trying to sing in all these languages. That's being mm-hmm. spread thin. And then yes. trying to uh, glean enough vocal knowledge to perform a, a solo recital at age 22 in all these languages oh, yeah. with not as much support as they probably need. You know, that's a, that's obviously a glaring and, thing. And grappling with a breadth of, of performance practice and stylistic concerns that would have never been even imagined a uh, hundred right. years ago. Exactly. That singers a hundred years ago would have never imagined that there would have been that much stylistic divergence to master a uh, hundred years ago. Yeah, right. yeah. From so. from like requirements of uh, like the way we sing Baroque music. There's yes. There's stronger ideas about that yes. now that, that it, it needs to be handled differently. And then a hundred years ago, there's a whole bunch of repertoire not yet written 
which in some schools, especially in some graduate programs, may be required, you know, that you sing things that are outside of the old canon, uh, what used to be called, uh, you know, modern music or or late 20th and early 21st century music or or new music or whatever. Um, that's another thing is the the time period requirements are also hmm. really fast. Fa- it's very. Yeah. yeah, it's it's huge. You got vast language requirements, vast time period requirements, vast performing requirements to, to get out of school yeah. and um, uh, not a not a whole lot of. Uh, support for it and so it's here's where I think the the trend towards these super talented vocalists going toward musical theater comes in mm-hmm. you look at Italy the birthplace of opera y- y- and how it developed there and and who was singing it well Italian people who right. s- who spoke and sang in Italian for I Italians think, for Italians I think yes. you have that with musical theater now yes the whole yes. The, the virtually the vast majority of the canon has come up in English and, and uh, mostly in America. And so it's natural really Mm. for, for vocally talented young people to express themselves in, in uh, uh, stage works that were conceived from their language. And, you know, Lord knows some of the uh, musicals now are every bit as difficult to perform as some operas vocally i mean mm-hmm. some of the jason robert brown uh and some of the sondheim and oh, yeah. some of the high flying stuff for women these days oh, yeah, yeah yeah i oh, mean yeah. it's 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 very it it's challenging and everything but i think kids kids i say kids you know young people I know, I know. students <laughs> same thing people under the age of 50 oh um, you young kids yeah <laughs> they, they're going to gravitate towards that it's a natural it's more of a natural progression culturally Yes. And and it's a lot easier to handle. You think of the final project. I mean, the kids who I've sent for musical theater degrees and stuff. Um, I had one young man who was actually on a more of a dance track. So for his final project, he was he did a choreography project. Mm-hmm. Fantastic mm-hmm. choreography show. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know these these kids are are being asked to do things in musical theater that they can actually get up and running with as young people in their teens. Yes. So it's, it's, it's kind of natural, you know, Italian people 150 years ago grew up with opera in their town. Sure. They did. Uh, us, us Americans, we've grown up with musicals all over the place. That's our music. Exactly. And so I think you, you really struck on something before that a lot of the people who in one era had, you know, who they have the vocal wherewithal to do amazing things they're they're going more towards the musical theater now because mm-hmm. that's that's where the action is that's the natural yeah. path that now one thing I'd love to talk about and you know so much more about this than I do because I ha- I'm I'm more of a boutique studio uh, where I just have a few people per year um, I have sent people to musical theater programs but you you get to coach a lot of these folks yeah. for yeah. audition coaching right yep yep so what are the issues there with the creation of mills. So that like it becomes mm. this self-feeding thing where there's a whole industry around around uh, musical theater programs that's totally out of whack with the marketplace. That's a really good question. I mean, there are I would consider some some musical programs theater programs can be uh, uh, mills. 
Uh -huh. They can be mills in the sense that uh, many of the students look the same, right? So they all take what the uh, what did they BCBJ? Right? What was it? Brown hairs, brown brown hair, brown eyes, <laughs> or something like that. BCBE or something like that, and you know they all sort of look the same. There's the same look, right? And and I feel like those kind of programs really what they're trying to create are the chorus chorus members of the Broadway stage, mm -hmm. right? They're trying to populate the, the ranks of rank and file, you know, Broadway. Yep. You know, what I would call the grunt people. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I just mean those are the hardworking, day-to-day mm -hmm. musical theater performers. Um, and then other programs can be much more diverse and much more individualistic. Some of them are more bent towards theater edu education. So um, students who want to go to those programs who would like to be in theater, but maybe they want to do something more uh, in, a, in an education track, they can do that. Um, but as far as what the musical theater uh, um, train is... It just, I think it depends because even if you open a Playbill magazine, you will see uh, a variety of different programs and different schools from whence all of these performers are being drawn. So it doesn't, it doesn't sort of, I mean, there are, are commonalities. I mean, there are definitely programs that we look on as being the, the, uh, the uh, flagship programs for musical theater. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but I think it, it, you know, it just depends. I mean, some schools really pride themselves on being very cutting edge. Um, some programs in, for example, in New York City are very, they pride themselves on being right in the middle of the action so that students can not only be in school, but they can go and audition right away. And, and I, again, that can you, can you imagine an opera, you know, you're taking your classes in the, during the middle of the day and then at night you're going to sing the opera. Well, it used to be that way. I mean, Maria Callas trained in Greece like that. Yeah. You know, where you would be in the, she would be in the conservatory of Athens in the, in the beginning of the day. And then at night she'd be performing off in some opera and somewhere, you know, um, and that's very different. We, you know, we don't really get that everywhere. Um, but I don't know if there's, I, I couldn't speak to authoritatively, you know, to say, well, mm -hmm. you know, that, that occurs, but I do think there's still a fact, there can be a factory element in, in many musical theater programs, mm. um, where they try to sort of, uh, collectivize everybody into this sort of, sort of a type a look okay um and that that can obviously be that can be great or that can also backfire mm -hmm. so that can either you know you can either get in because commercial theater is a whole other bag of tricks as far as you know many of the performing artists i've talked to you know they look at it and they go oh yeah yeah you know because at the end of the day yes art's great but the the purpose is money Mm -hmm. You know, the purpose of it at the end of the day is to make a dollar. I mean, they want to make a dollar. They want to get a return on their investment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so there's always that commercial uh, conflict, right, between art and commerce. Yeah. So, but well, it's interesting to see the kids that, you know, when they come in, because many of the kids I work with, the students I work with, um, you know, some of them are, have been studying for years and some of them don't study at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, they want to be a theatrical performer and they have never they've never really studied that whether that's dance or acting or, or singing. Um, so they just have done it in high school and they, they'd like to continue doing it, uh, in their college, uh, experience. Mm -hmm. So it's that even of itself is a mixed, a mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a big question about preparing musical theater people. Um, what should a musical theater program mm. look like? I mean, because, because, mm -hmm. uh, there are, there are some that are seem to be more um, intensive about the acting part, and there's mm -hmm. some that seem to be more intensive about the dancing part. And yes. most of them would claim to be intensive about all three: singing, mm -hmm. acting, dancing. Sure. Uh, at which, generally, you want to have skills in all those areas. All three. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if mm -hmm. you're going to do musical theater, um, 
And I think the musical theater degree programs, you know, they're they're newer than the voice major programs. So they're perhaps... They can kind of make... Yeah, they, they're more at poise to be more uh, creative, yeah, I think. Yeah, they seem yeah. a little more responsive to the needs mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. To, to where they think their niche is. I'm not going to name schools, but I, d- I am aware of a couple of these places that that do place a lot of chorus members uh, on Broadway. Um, I can think of a couple schools. And one of those schools is a school that types the kids, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like like long, you know, before they even get there, they, they won't get in unless they're viable in, in that pipeline. And, you know, they're very much, that's a lot like a trade school. I mean, if you do your mm-hmm. research as a, as a uh, student and, you know, you, you should know whether your school does have any connections to casting. And if they do, and if that's what you want, then by all means go to a school where it's going to be geared towards making you a great uh, chorus member for for getting started. Um, Absolutely, it's it's interesting how some of our our leading ladies and gentlemen uh, did not go through musical theater programs, and because uh, either because there wasn't certain pipelines, um, or because they're getting roles that require incredible strength in a certain area. Um, you know, I'm thinking of the, the Kelly O'Hara's and Kristen Chenoweth's and, um, you know, some of, some of those folks that are sort of, um, voice first, but very strong musical theater performers. Mm-hmm. I would say those two, especially Kristen's not known for her dancing, but they all have had to do it. They can move. Yeah, they can move. No one gets. No one gets to. You know, a a stand and bark musical really kind of doesn't exist. (laughs) Mm -mm. I mean, maybe out in the boonies. Yeah, maybe out in the boonies, but not you know in any major you know market. Yeah. Yeah. So I think they've done a little better uh, than on the classical side about realistically preparing students. You know what I mean? I think I think those curricula make sense uh, in terms of what the student wants to do, what the market might be able to hire them for, yes, yes, et cetera. Yes. So there may be too many, you know, the, the, the programs are flooded and it sort of creates its own little industry. But it seems like generally what they study is pretty germane to skills that will really help them to be musical yeah. theater performers. The, the boots on the ground work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm thinking what I'd like to do in part two of our conversation, mm-hmm. I'd like to pivot back over to the uh, voice performance side yeah. of things. And I'd love to get into this um, curriculum we've been talking lately about Peter, yes. Peter Harrison's ideal mm-hmm. voice curriculum mm-hmm. yes. and, and why he might have come up with some of these things. Because he has some, some elements of, a, of an ideal voice school that I've never seen anywhere else. Uh, and a lot of them make a heck of a lot of sense. Absolutely. I mean, I I could just parenthetically, I think that one of the things I always thought was so disappointing was, you know, with regard to acting as a classical singer, it's like, well, you either have it or you don't. And, and then if you did take an acting class as an opera singer, you would usually take this acting for singers, which would be this sort of watered down, uh, (laughs) you know, oh just terrible you know facially oriented sort of like smile don't smile laugh look angry i mean 
the the most almost comically mugging acting that you can even imagine and and i always wish that you know i had been able to take an actually a genuine acting class truly an acting class um and i wish that that more opera singers would be would be availed would be able to avail themselves of such as that i wish Um, i had too i i ended up doing that in my 30s uh around the time i started teaching voice it was when i finally took real acting classes and i'm like this would have helped me even back when I was mm. an instrumental major, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's there's so much about uh, being on stage that yes, that yes. you can learn uh, regardless of what the hell you're doing on stage, whether mm-hmm. you're a, mm-hmm. a, a corporate speaker, a flutist or a musical yeah. board, theater a bo- actor. or a boardroom executive. You know, oh, yeah. Talking to people in a boardroom. You oh, know, yeah. It's, it's, it, it would have you know. been amazing. So. Yeah, but I'm actually. I love this. Let's let's dive into Peter Harrison's sort Great. of ideas yeah. next time, and just sort of give them a go, and and uh, just kind of share that because I think it is great uh, to um, see what people that are not in the machine think would be a really good curriculum for singers. Excellent. Right. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe and check us out at thevoiceculture.com. Bye for now. Thank you.